This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast, where non-technical professionals stay ahead of the AI curve. If you're not looking to learn to write Python, but you do want to help develop an AI strategy and see AI through to a successful ROI, then you found yourself in the right place. And in this episode, we're focused in on the financial services industry, specifically on payment fraud. Years ago, when we first launched our AI and financial services podcast, which is still up today, by the way, we'll mention that at the end of this episode, we had a great guest by the name of Ying Lian Zi from a, at the time, small company called Datavisor. Since then, Datavisor has doubled a few times as they continue to grow, and we are bringing on someone else from their team this week. Richard Shack is a fraud product strategy consultant with Datavisor, and he speaks with us this week about two specific topics. Number one, exactly how is fraud detected with AI when it comes to payment fraud? What's the simple way of framing it? Some of these concepts will be familiar for some of you long-term listeners, but I think we do have some new ideas jostled about as well in terms of where data and algorithms fit into the mix. Richard provides some specific perspective on what workflows look like before and after, which is actually somewhat similar. In addition, Richard talks to us at the end of this episode about ideas for adopting AI for fraud. What are the important points that leadership needs to bear in mind if they actually want to apply artificial intelligence to this space? It's certainly a rife area for opportunity. Anomaly detection and payment fraud is, is an area where we see a tremendous amount of spend and investment when it comes to financial services firms. But still, what are some important ideas to get started? And at the very end of the episode, Richard talks about the importance of lighthouse projects, those first projects that can prove out ROI. What does it look like to find the right balance between data access and an initial POC to be able to get leadership to approve a larger project, to really be able to level up fraud detection as a capability. It's never going to be a one-step process, but being able to get small wins can help us get there. And Richard does a good job of being able to, to tee up some of the most important elements of finding those small wins. So no matter what industry you're in, finding those small wins and turning them into bigger ones is something that's applicable. You'll get to hear some of Richard's experience and hopefully apply it to your business. And we've got a lot to cover today. So without further ado, this is Richard with Datavisor here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Richie, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. Happy yeah. to be here. And we're getting to talk about a topic of great importance for a great number of our folks who are in the financial services space, and that is payment fraud, certainly an area you've been close to for many years here. Before we get into the nuances of where AI fits into the mix, of which there's a lot to cover, I want to talk about sort of why this has become more and more of a topic for folks in the banking and financial services space. What are sort of the, the forces and factors around us that are putting this on the radar for, for banking leaders? Yeah, I think fraud in general is constantly evolving. So I think in today's, today's economy, it's even more prevalent from both a company standpoint and a consumer standpoint. So in today's economy, we're seeing that budgets are tighter for companies, profit margins are lower, you know, they can't really afford too much fraud loss. And from a consumer standpoint too, you know, if money's tighter, you know, you might be looking for different opportunities or different options when it comes to buying buying things and it might be making yourself vulnerable with with some of your purchasing habits as well. Got it. So and there's those elements and I, I think there's also at least some factors here going on around bracing for a situation where maybe we have to do more with less? Are you seeing companies maybe putting a focus on anything that has to do with margins or certain kinds of risks? Also, are there higher 
fraud instances during certain economic cycles or or certain kinds of situations? Is there anything else there that might be relevant for folks in, in the FinServe space? There's a couple of things we could touch on there where one company's, you know, if, if business isn't going so well or sales are down or the economy's down in general, companies are always trying to cut costs, tighten their budgets, right? You know, they're they're always worried about that bottom line. And sometimes, or a lot of times, I would say companies forget to prioritize fraud or they cut fraud or it just it gets lost in the shuffle, right? There's other things they're worrying about, you yep. know, maybe even maybe even trying to stay afloat, right? So a lot of times if business isn't doing so well, fraud does not get prioritized. And you know, that can really leave companies vulnerable or you know cut into their bottom line even more. I also think that fraud is something that's constant regardless of how the economy is going. Up and down fraud stays pretty constant. It's always there. It just changes the priorities change or the importance changed or how prevalent it is might change. Got it. Okay, cool. So not necessarily something we see ups and downs with. We, we've certainly done interviews in the insurance space where we hear about sort of trends in certain kinds of insurance fraud, certainly going up under certain economic cycles. It sounds like maybe with payment fraud, we're not necessarily tracking anything similar there. But regardless, at least that sets the table for why this is on the radar and, and certainly of relevance for financial services leaders. Lots to dive into in terms of where AI fits into the mix. Maybe you could talk at a high level, you know, when you're explaining to business people where AI plays a role here and really getting into kind of examples of the the workflows that it impacts, how do you mm-hmm. describe sort of the place and purpose for AI in, in payment fraud? Yeah, I think, you know, AI is, people think of it as a very fancy concept, right? It's It sounds, it sounds cool. It sounds futuristic, right? But it's, it, it's a little more simpler than that. And I think with AI and machine learning, they build, they fit into two aspects. The way I look at it when it comes to fraud is one, the first aspect is, you know, looking at all the data elements that might be associated with a transaction or a bank transaction and assessing the patterns in that data or the combinations of that data, you know, running it through a machine learning model and spitting out a risk score to, you know, assess the risk of that transaction. So, it's kind of giving you a one, one all or all encompassing score to make decisions when it comes to a good transaction versus a bad transaction. So that's one part of it, as well as kind of building that into your automation, because that's the big thing now is companies don't want to do any manual review, right? They want to move to auto automation where decisions are being made in milliseconds. And AI is a huge, huge part of that as well. Yeah, so we, and we, we're going to talk more specifically about the workflows. I think something that, Richie, for our audience, they will be familiar with roughly is sort of this idea of, I guess we've explained it different ways and different guests over the years. We can sort of pattern match to what is a transaction that's extremely low likelihood to be fraudulent? What's a pattern match of one that is extremely high in terms of being mm-hmm. fraudulent? Or we can just look at things that are very divergent from normal. So maybe it doesn't match with a known pattern of risk but it certainly doesn't match with patterns of normal. And so we still might want to flag it and use all those factors to, as you had said, give it a score, whether it's a you know a one to a 99 or whatever the case may be about how mm-hmm. likely we think this transaction is to, to be fraud. I think some of the, the, the nuance here will be around where this fits into workflows. I think payment, the, the assessment of, of sort of payment fraud 
our, our listeners are probably less familiar with kind of what the workflow is. In other words, who's the human being that is looking transaction by transaction as at all of the things that could be fraud and is sort of looking for those needles in the haystack? And how does their job change in kind of a fundamental way after AI? Are they looking at exactly the same dashboard, except they're looking at only the things with an 80 or higher or 50 or higher, 20% or higher likelihood of being fraud? Or does their actual workflow itself change? What's the sort of impact for the business in that regard? Yeah, I think if, you know, if you if you have a, a fraud prevention team within your business, that's doing some sort of manual review for for risky transactions, right? Ideally, you are not reviewing any transactions that are good customers, right? You should only be looking at ones that you're on the fence or potentially fraud. So as we move more towards AI and auto decisioning a little bit, you want to spend your time in a a meaningful way reviewing transactions that could be fraudulent. You know, if you're just looking at good customer activity, that's kind of a waste of your time. Reducing false positives, obviously, a big part of the mix here. Yeah, absolutely. I think... I think it works from both sides, right? You want to, you can minimize customer friction by pushing the good activity to make an auto decision instantly or pushing, you know, transactions, you know, are fraudulent to auto reject instantly. And then anything, any manual review you're doing should be the riskier transactions that could go either way. Yeah. And and so in terms of the before and after of leveraging artificial intelligence, when you even think about your own customers or other people using different solutions in the industry, are, are these fraud analysts, for the most part, looking at the same old dashboard they've been looking at for however long before, except they're now looking only at the things that the AI system believes are maybe more worthy of their attention based on their divergence from a norm or based on their match to a pattern of fraud? Or or does the workflow in some broader way fundamentally change in terms of how they're how they're looking at these transactions outside of just having a little label next to it. Yeah, I think the the dashboard or you know the layout or the data they're looking at is really not going to change much, right? There might be an additional score, you know, if you're using a, a supervised machine learning model or other type of machine learning models, you might have additional risk scores that you're building into your assessment when looking at a transaction. So I don't think the data that they'd be looking at or any any of that is really going to change much. What we're really trying to change is the amount of volume that is going to that dashboard, right? So minimizing these review rates and moving more towards automation and using AI to do that is huge. So you can accomplish more with smaller teams and maybe not have to invest as much into manual review or anything like that. Got it. Okay, cool. So this this makes sense. And I, we found certainly from a vendor perspective, Richie, that a lot of vendors who are radically altering the workflow of any certain kind of employee type at a company that they're they're selling into are going to be facing a lot more uphill battles than those can, that can kind of augment and add a layer of value on top of the system they're already in because change management is... Yep. Not an easy, not an easy game, uh, Richie. From our perspective, looking, no. looking at startups that succeed and fail, that there's certainly some patterns there that we we pay attention to. So, okay, so similar similar dashboard, looking at scores. We can talk a little bit about t- two other sort of things here that I think might be very interesting as to where AI fits in. Clearly, there is a benefit here around dealing with less fraud. If we have fraud occur, you know, payment fraud occur on one of our customers. That's not a good experience for them, and maybe that's going to rub off on on their perception of us, and and that's not a good thing. Also, mm-hmm. we have the chance to lose you know some serious 
income here as, as, as an organization. If we're having a lot of fraudulent transactions go through, that's, that's not going to be good for our bottom line. But when we interviewed your CEO, this is years ago when we first launched the AI and financial services podcast, which we, we still run here at Emerge, she brought up kind of an, an, a point that back then was a little bit counterintuitive, which is if we can determine what is fraudulent and what isn't in a much faster way, we can also say yes to non-fraudulent transactions even faster, and that can even mm-hmm. affect kind of customer experience. What for you are really the big customer experience impacts of being able to work with fraud in a more accurate way? Yeah, I think, you know, when, when you're talking about fraud prevention, you're trying to accomplish a couple of things with, with a company, obviously minimizing the fraud loss, right? But also creating a better customer experience and reducing customer friction. So if I'm a consumer and I go to, you know, whatever, whatever merchant and I check out, you know, I want that to be a seamless experience. I definitely don't want to be flagged incorrectly for fraud or, you know, have my order canceled for potential fraud too. So using machine learning to make sure you're accurate in your decisions in, you know, preventing fraud on one end and pushing the good customers to go through immediately. So there's zero friction. That's a huge, huge part of it and extremely important. And it's also creating that customer loyalty, right? If I, this first time I go to a merchant, if I run into, a couple of hoops I have to jump through, or God forbid something gets canceled by mistake, I'm not going to come back to that merchant. So it, it works from both ends where you're stopping that bad activity right away with artificial intelligence, but also your good customers are going right through, you know, their purchases or whatever it might be. You know, this Richie's been coming here and, and using the same data points, same email, same IP, same address, same information for years. There's minimal risk there that he shouldn't have to, you know, wait or, or worry about any friction. Got it. Yeah. So faster, frictionless, you know, transactions. I'm I'm in Europe right now as we're recording this episode, and I know that I've mm-hmm. had I've had some cards completely, you know, conk out on me and and sort of immediately believe that there's there's something yeah. horrible going on, and then you know other cards that are uh, responding in a much better way. Thank goodness for American Express. But but yeah. <laughs> There's there's certainly a customer experience element to that. You know, I mean, we're we're frustrated when things don't work out when it's not fraud, and of course, we're also frustrated when things that are fraudulent do occur. I think an, an yep. interesting point to ask you, Richie, just from your hands-on experience in this space, is about what it looks like to customize some of this based on individual financial institutions. So I can imagine a, a tremendous amount of fraud has a lot in common. The way that we would use somebody's credit card or, or leverage their payments in it through any other means, if it be fraudulent, probably has some patterns in any state in the union, no matter what kind of things I'm buying, etc. However, if I think about a credit union in the Midwest and mostly rural areas, maybe the fundamental behavior is a little bit different. And these algorithms have to be tuned to, to pick up on the more likely kinds of fraud that we are to face versus someone who's mostly doing international business where they might be looking at much bigger transaction sizes and and separate sorts of patterns of fraud. So there's got to be some commonalities, but I imagine some some bending and tweaking based on the volume that we as an organization see. What does that customization look like? Yeah, I think it it really depends on, you know, your business and your use case, right? Like <clears throat> there are fraud fraud trends or fraud schemes that are they're going to be the same across the board, right? If you somebody's using a, an email that's obviously fake or they're using an IP address, 
from from a riskier country or an IP address that doesn't make sense. Like these translate across different industries when it comes to fraud. But when it comes to getting into the specifics of a use case or a business, there is a lot of customization that has to go into, you know, knowing what kind of data that that merchant is working with and what their customer base is, what their services or products are, and establishing what like what are the good patterns of good customer behavior. So it is something that's constantly being refined and you know you really have to pay attention to what you're trying to accomplish and what you know what that business need is there is it safe to say that you know when we're working with a new financial organization new financial institution we are going to look at the particular types of business they're involved in the the kinds of transactions they deal with the frequency of various and sundry fraud types and dollar values and customer types for that particular institution and and consider adjusting training loading up our ai system to in some way be better prepared for what they in particular are more likely to deal with and and if so what's mm-hmm. the process take how long how much time does this involve what kind of historical data are we going to need for this sort of work it'd be great to get a sense of, of what this looks like yeah i think you're always going to need historical data to do a little bit of warming and establish you know, do some data warming, established patterns of both good and bad behavior, right? If you start from square one and just start feeding data through a model today, you know, there's the model's not using any type of velocity or any type of historical data or any established patterns. So there is a warming period that's always necessary and historical data that's needed. And the way I look at it is the more the more historical data we can get to to warm up a model and establish that good behavior, the better. Sometimes you'll get three months, six months, up to a year of, of historical data that's going to have all of your traffic, right? Your your good activity, your bad activity, whatever signals you're getting, you know, whatever data you have, doing a historical data dump to kind of warm that model and get it ready and establish, you know, patterns of good and bad behavior to prepare for actual live production data. That's extremely important. And the way I look at it, the more, the better. Yeah. and And I guess... This, you know, this is going to start leaning us in the direction of my final question, which is going to be around advice for adopting fraud technology into or AI technology into these fraud workflows. But I'll tee it up with this because I'm building off of what you just said there. I can imagine different organizations that vendors like yourself work with. Some are maybe more prepared when it comes to where data has been stored, how much of it has been kept, et cetera, et cetera, than others. Mm-hmm. I can imagine there's there's a bit of sort of maybe a learning curve for some organizations in terms of being able to find, to collate, to harmonize, to make sense of some of this past data, because maybe they've kept it, humans have manually reviewed it, but it's never had to be clean enough, harmonized enough, organized and streamable in some real-time accessible way to actually be mm-hmm. used to train a model. Are there often some steps involved in taking what has heretofore been, let's look at it when we need to, into, hey, this needs to be a living, breathing asset that's actually streamlined? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point is we run into the scenario a lot where a merchant or a bank or whatever it might be, their workflows or processes are involved, like have a lot of different systems involved, right? They might be checking certain data points in this system, checking certain data points in this system. This data stream is flowing from here. There's a lot of data joining that might have to happen. And what we find is some organizations, whether it's a bank or a merchant or whatever it might be, they're not technically capable or technically ready to 
get all of this data joined together and get it ready to stream in, in real time. So that is always a challenge is making sure that, you know, you know your data, you understand your data, you know where it's coming from, you have the technical capabilities to put it all together and, and send it through an endpoint or whatever it might be so we can do a risk assessment on it. So that is a challenge. It, it depends how capable your organization is when it comes from a technical standpoint. Yeah, and I guess this steers us into the challenge of, or the various and sundry considerations for adoption. Obviously, we're touching on a big one. That is to say, what is the state of our data and what would it take to get access to the silos we need to access and to potentially clean what we need to clean in order to do our initial round of training and then in order to get mm -hmm. access to this longer term. So maybe we could go a little bit on the data side, but let me actually ask at a higher level and you can touch on a couple points because we want to get this as practical as we can be. There's plenty of folks who are tuned in now. They're working in financial organizations and AI is going to be an inevitable part of their evolution, but mm -hmm. exactly how, exactly what do we need to bear in mind? So let me frame it this way. If you're talking to FinServe leaders that are thinking about embedding AI into these systems, finding more needles in the haystack, so to speak, what are the practical adoption considerations that they need to bear in mind sort of before they even get started? Yeah, I think before you even get started, you have to understand what data you have. And well, a lot of times what we run into is if we're trying to, to get data from a certain client or whatever it might be, they tend to think some things are more important than others, right? Like, oh, like, why would you need this, this certain data? The more, the better. Like fraud, the fraud picture spans across a lot of different data points in general. So companies need to prepare to send that data because when it comes to machine learning or AI, right, the the bigger the bigger the picture, the bigger the historical data, the bigger the time frame, the more frequent or larger data amounts are going to create a more accurate model when it comes to you know, fitting in AI or machine learning. So hopefully that, that answers yeah, that question. Yeah, but, certainly. Yeah. Yep. So that, that's, that's part of the mix. And obviously there's, there's cultural elements, there's team collaboration elements. What are the other things that you really wish more FinServe leaders knew even before they started leveraging this technology or getting a hold of companies like yourself? What are the things that they, they should have in mind to, to know what it's going to take to make this come to life? Yeah, I think just understanding the data you do have where it's coming from, realizing that data across the board, whatever the data points might be, are important to the fraud picture. You do run into scenarios where people think sharing data is scary, especially yes. in today's world. And that's perfectly understandable. And when you talk about financial institutions that have been very well established for a long time, you know, they might have systems that are very much out of date when it comes to you know, getting data or sharing data or streaming it. So there's a lot of different aspects and you run into hurdles when you talk to some of these technical engineers where, why do we have to send this data? Like, cause it is scary, right? You don't want to just be sending data unless you feel protected. So, you know, that's a huge part of it too, is, you know, getting over that hurdle of, you know, sharing the data in general. And what does it take culturally to make that happen? Because obviously People don't want to feel like their toes are being stepped on. Maybe we've got we've got kind of some kings of some different castles and, you know, being able to control their data is sort of part of what it feels like to be a boss. And, you know, there's human ego stuff. And then there's also realistic concerns. There's, hey, if something happens to this data in terms of governance, it's ultimately going to be on me and I'm going to be in trouble here. And so there's, there's considerations like that. What have you found 
sort of helps when it comes to culture or just a, a shift of mindset to be able to say, hey, let's make this more accessible. Let's find a way to fundamentally be more nimble with our data, still keep it governed and secure, but we've really got to open it up. What are the things that lead to that kind of click? Because I, a lot of our listeners are already there, but a lot of the companies they work for, Richie, are not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. So I'd love some yep. of your thoughts about what you've seen kind of tip the scale a bit. Yeah, I think there's two things I would touch on for sure. Like the first is trust, right? Like we we look at ourselves as a like a consultant partner with our with our clients. You know, we want to drive their success. We want to understand their data, assess risk, and help them understand their data and, and, and what's risky and what's not. So building that trust as a consultant, you know, and not not necessarily a vendor, but a partner, right? Like we we want you to be successful. That's our goal as your partner. So that's one part of it is building that trust. And the other part I think has gets some people moving is showing ROI or, you know, return on investment, right? Yeah, this is important. Yeah. I think when you get to higher ups in a corporation that might be a little hesitant when it comes to data or hesitant in investing, because like we talked about, budgets are tight, showing how you can minimize their fraud loss and how that's going to directly affect their bottom line, you know, showing dollar amounts. Hey, if, if you use one of our machine learning models, you know, using that 12, 12 months of historical data that was given to us, we can show results like we would have prevented this percentage, you know, whatever it might be. And then yeah. you got to show the dollar amount. That's where you get people's eyes. Like we would have stopped 100K, you know, of fraud prevention, whatever it might be. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Then you might get the go ahead when people start seeing dollar signs and what's staying in their pocket. So this is this is really important. Well, it's it's clearly important for you folks as a vendor because, of course, you've got to build enough momentum to really be able to serve customers and keep customers and, and continue to, to hire talented folks and grow. But even if I think about our listeners, many of whom are inside of financial services organizations, we've got folks on the email list from the Wells Fargo's and the JP Morgan's and, and all the rest of them, and then certainly many smaller organizations. For them, it sounds like one of the lessons here, Richie, and I'd love to know if maybe this is passes for you is, hey, let's think about the maybe the least risky, the least intimidating ways that we can share and clean data in order to run enough of a POC, in order to run enough of an early project about maybe a certain file of our data in in a certain time Mm -hmm. period to be able to very tangibly showcase what the difference is. Maybe we need to plan on not thinking about the overall enterprise openness structure and more about what are the sniper points where I can get buy-in and where I can get access to the data I need to clearly show the ROI case, and then I can fight for the bigger opening. It, it sounds like even internal team members might want to think that way. We run into that scenario a lot where a client might just want to dip their toe in the water, so to speak, you know, start with one product stream. You know, if they have multiple product offerings, right? They start with a smaller one, you know, start sending some of that data and start to show the results in that builds that trust or shows that return on investment, and then okay. Let's start sending, let's, let's have all of our data run through and do risk assessment on all of our product types or whatever it might be. Yeah. So being able to find a beachhead and, and for, for you guys on the vendor side, again, you've, you've got to find, you know, who's going to be your champion, what's the data that's most easy to access. But even for those internal team members, it sounds Mm -hmm. like they're going to often be going through the same process of finding that lighthouse. So this has been good, Richie. We've been able to get into where AI makes a difference. And I think importantly, what are some of the things to bear in mind to get the ball rolling when it comes to data and to culture? 
lots to chew on for the listeners who are tuned in at home. And I know that's all we have for time, but Richie, thank you so much for being able to join us on the show. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I hope it was helpful and would love to, to talk more if another opportunity comes up. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Richard for being our guest here this week. And thank you to you, our listener, for being able to tune in. I mentioned at the top of this episode, we had DataVisor's CEO on our AI and financial services podcast years ago. If you are interested in financial services, if you operate in banking or insurance, or maybe you serve companies in those spaces, even wealth management, then be sure to check out our AI and financial services podcast. We do not promote it that much here on the AI and business podcast. It is more niche. It is more focused on use cases, generally speaking. And you can find it at the AI and Financial Services Podcast. Go to Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere where you listen to audio media and type in AI and Financial Services Podcast. Ying Lian Z's episode from way back when is still there on the show, but we have many new episodes on the AI and Financial Services Podcast, and we have new ones going out every month. So again, you can go on Apple, Spotify, whatever, type in AI and Financial Services Podcast. If you're looking for more use cases and trends specifically in the future of financial services, that would be where you might want to start. In the meantime, I certainly appreciate you being a listener here on the AI and Business Podcast. This is something like our ninth or 10th month, over 100,000 downloads a month, and it is all from you folks being able to give us some good ideas on editorial content and continuing to stick around and listen to us every week. I appreciate you a ton. I hope if you have ideas for future podcasts, you'll be in touch with me via LinkedIn, or you can simply reply to our email newsletter here at Emerge and let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Otherwise, stay tuned next week, and I'll catch you here again on the AI and Business Podcast.